Okay, 11 o'clock, so let's get started. Um, let me do a quick introduction here about the theme and uh, the conference itself. So, dear colleagues and participants, thank you for joining today. I think it's great that you are here uh, in this beautiful auditorium at the Hoover Institution. So, welcome. My name is Norbert Holtkamp. For those who don't know me, I'm a science fellow here uh, at this great institution, and I will spend the next two years or so um, to think and research about international collaboration, scientists and student exchange, education interlinks with economy, talent attraction, demography, national security, and how to remain at the forefront of world-leading science in the changing world. That's a big word, so but that's a good start. So personally, very grateful for Secretary Rice to uh, allow me to do this here at Hoover and at the amazing Hoover team, which some of you have met. Let me actually do this and help put this together. So open collaboration uh, for the last couple of decades was based on a well-known doctrine that Tom is actually going to talk about, which in short says engineering is and science is open until it's classified. Um, now, that's replaced now with words like decoupling, de-risking, and a whole bunch of other ones that we're going to talk about the next uh, two, three days here. And uh, why is that? The world has changed. It's not the same world like 40, 50 years ago. And uh, somebody, some people have changed the rules of the game, so we have to react. Um, but what is this new approach going to look like uh, as part of the discussion today and uh, how to do what we need to do without negatively impacting US leadership position in science and technology is kind of the key question. And uh, today, which is organized by the Technology, Economics and Governance Group, Tech, Amy and John both run this group, so thank you for letting me do this here. Um, um, uh, help me put this together and tomorrow and on Wednesday, uh, the National Academy of Science and its security Roundtable have organized a program that we co-host between the university, Stanford University, and Hoover, actually next door here in Blount Hall. Um, so with that um, introduction to the two meetings, and if you want to come tomorrow, please register or at least sign up when you when you walk in. Uh, I think walk-ins are still welcome. Uh, Carla told me. Um, then uh, please participate. We have about what is it now, Carla? 180, 90 kind of on-site on registrants and another 200 or so um, uh, online. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to this. Very interesting program. You can find all this on the webpage if you look it up. So let me finally introduce the speaker here, uh, Dr. Tom Mason. Tom has a distinguished career that I'm not going to read to you because it's too long um, and uh, is presently the director of Los Alamos, which is really at the forefront of this topic, which is, I think, why he's on the round table and why he and I have been talking about getting him here and having him talk about this uh, topic. And uh, we look forward to learn from him how you manage, or you, the laboratory, you, the director, manage research versus um, security at Los Alamos. And that will be the kickoff for uh, whole number of discussions. We follow by Q&A this afternoon. So Tom, thank you very much for coming here. Thank you for joining us, and uh, please go ahead. Okay, thank you, Norbert. Um, 
So as, as Norbert mentioned, and most of you are involved, this discussion is, is teed up uh, kind of in coordination with this National Academy Roundtable on Science and Security. And uh, for those of you who don't know, that was something that was stood up as a result of a defense authorization a couple of years ago um, around some of the emerging concerns associated with the topic of research security. And um, it's intended to bring together uh, people from the research community and universities and in federal agencies with people with a background from national security and intelligence community to have a discussion about how to navigate the landscape that we find ourselves in. And, um, you know, it, it may not be in the news as much as other topics that we see in academia in terms of freedom of speech and, uh, you know, global conflict and diversity. And there are a number of topics that we see kind of in the national dialogue around, um, you know, the institutions that form the research enterprise, but the research security topic is very much active right now. I can tell you, you know, just personally, obviously in my role, I spend a fair amount of time on Capitol Hill talking to policymakers, talking to staff. And today when I have a meeting, I don't get to spend uh, the first half of the meeting on what I'm there to talk about in terms of the research activities. We spend the first half of the discussion talking about research security. There's intense interest. Uh, there has been legislation, the Chips and Science Act included a lot of provisions that were focused on this topic. Um, there is a desire, I think, on the part of some to do more legislatively uh, because of these concerns. So this is, this is a very much kind of real-time debate that's going on. Um, and sometimes in talking with people, you get the impression that... Uh, you know, this is somehow some sort of new topic. And, and so what I thought I would do is just from the point of view of a national lab, review a little bit of the history of the discussion around research security and how to strike the appropriate balance between openness and collaboration so that we can go faster and protecting sensitive information so that, you know, the US national interest is not harmed because of course this is not a new topic. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, for, for the national labs, world history starts with World War II. I recognize there was some world history before that. Um, but it is fair to say that prior to the Second World War, there was pretty limited government involvement in funding research. Um, scientific research, you know, for much of history was, was almost more of a hobby for the wealthy uh, so you either had to come from a family with wealth or you had to have some kind of patron. You know, Galileo was careful to always acknowledge his patrons when he was writing. Um, there were a small number of universities that had some sort of independent funding because they had, you know, endowments. There are colleges at Oxford that own most of shopping districts in central London. And, you know, that generated revenue for purchasing nice wine, but also for indulging the hobbies of people who are employed at the universities. Um, there were some exceptions. Uh, you know, the military did sometimes fund 
things that we would call R&D. A noteworthy example was the Royal Navy interest in so solving the problem of longitude. And they actually had a competition that led to the development of accurate clocks. Um, and, uh, but, you know, more normal uh, practice was actually what we saw with the Army, which was an early Wright Brothers customer. Um, in 1909, they purchased one of the Wright Brothers planes, but by that point, all the development work had been done, uh, you know, on the Wright Brothers' own nickel. Uh, and it was a couple years after the first flights at Kitty Hawk where the Army sort of said, okay, we'll buy a plane provided it can fly this far in this amount of time. Um, but it was not something that, that they put government funds at risk to develop that technology. It was, it was uh, coming in after the fact. Um, the the Morrill Act, Morrill Act uh, established the land-grant universities and provided a basis for federal support for agricultural R&D. Uh, and that's probably, and certainly in the U.S., the best example of you know, a, a, a decision by the U.S. government to invest in R&D, although it, it largely was not what we would consider in any sense fundamental research. It was more just taking the available technology and applying it to the challenges that were faced by farmers. So it was, we would say today, it was all high, high TRL level stuff that was really envisaged as part of that. So the focus of any government investments that did occur uh, prior to the Second World War were really on the application of knowledge that had somehow come into being by some other means. Um, and uh, uh, of course that, that did change. So the, the, uh, the, the entity that came into being as a consequence really of the Second World War that, that began to really start looking at uh, federally funded research as an instrument of, in this instance, national security, uh, was the Office of Scientific Research and Development it was established in December of 1941. The discussions to initiate OSRD actually began before Pearl Harbor, but the executive order you know, happens uh, as a consequence or simultaneous with basically uh, the, the Pearl Harbor attack. But it had been under discussion for, for a period of time before that in anticipation that the US would enter the war. And it was intended to coordinate wartime military R&D. Um, was led by Vannevar Bush, who's pictured at the top there, who had been at MIT and was the director of the Carnegie Institution in Washington. And it shepherded research into very what proved to be very consequential topics. Uh, and, and two that are probably most consequential in terms of the outcomes of the Second World War are radar and proximity fuses and uh, the initial phases of the atomic bomb program. And arguably, you know, the development of radar and proximity fuses was uh, a, 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 an essential part of how uh, the United Kingdom was able to make it through the Battle of Britain. And, and that technology, of course, was based on electromagnetic theory and work that had been really latter part of the 19th century, very fundamental physics. In fact, there's a famous uh, quote that's ascribed to Michael Faraday 
I don't know that it's exactly documented that he really said this, but it's reported that uh, upon a visit by Gladstone, who at the time was Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, so basically Treasury Secretary, Secretary for the UK, he subsequently became Prime Minister, was visiting the Royal Institution where Faraday was lecturing about electromagnetism and asked him, well, what is the use of all this? And Faraday reportedly said, well, I don't really know, but I bet one day you will tax it. Um, and, uh, and, and so that, what had been 19th century, what we would now call classical physics, ultimately got realized in the form of radar uh, as a result of the kind of focused investment that was carried out under the auspices of this OSRD. And OSRD was also the shepherd for what became the Manhattan Project during, um, during this initial phase. And in fact, this was the most closely held OSRD activity. There was something called the S1 Executive Committee that was a very small group of people who knew what that program was. It was not widely shared with the military. It was not widely shared within the government. Um, and uh, it, it, it's uh, because it was funding the work, began to impose restrictions on the scientists at universities who were supported in this effort. There were efforts at Columbia University, University of Chicago, uh, Berkeley, uh, all, all across the country in physics departments. Um, prior to the formation of OSRD, there had actually been an effort uh, uh, just a, a grassroots effort to restrict publication in the area of nuclear physics and fission. Um, fission was discovered in 1938. In fact, the announcement uh, that uh, what Hahn and Strassmann have observed was fission was a, a uh, that was a, deter a determination made by Otto Frisch and Lise Meitner in December of 1938. Um, and, and Niels Bohr traveled to Washington in January and gave a lecture at an APS meeting, Jonathan Bagger is here from the APS, where he announced that fission has occurred. And it was immediately obvious to anyone who was active in the field that this had the potential for a chain reaction because the fission process was initiated by neutrons and produced more neutrons than it took to initiate. And that's the fundamental ingredient of a chain reaction. So many physicists very quickly realized that there was a potential for huge energy release. And Enrico Fermi, uh, who was a refugee scientist from Italy, and Leo Szilard, and Edward Teller, and Eugene Wigner, who were refugee scientists in the US from Hungary. So four physicists who'd fled fascism immediately recognized that this was something that could be relevant to the war effort. And they were very concerned that Nazi Germany would uh, acquire the ability to use it militarily. So they advocated for voluntary restrictions on publications um, to prevent information from being available to Nazi Germany that might aid their war effort. This effort at sort of self-censorship was partially successful. US and, and British scientists for a period of time refrained from publishing. It fell apart when Frederick Joliet in France published his results because 
people were willing to restrain up to the point where they saw someone else publishing in a way that would mean they would not get credit for their discoveries. So, so once Joliet started publishing the results, the voluntary restraint fell apart because people did not want to be scooped, basically. Uh, however, when OSRD was created, because they were now funding the research, they also started to impose restrictions on publication. So that, that kind of instituted measures to limit the public promulgation about information relevant to the, uh, to the war effort. In, in 1942, there was a transition from this OSRD, which had funded research largely in universities in a fairly uh, you know, collegial, collaborative mode. There was restrictions on publication and discussing what you were doing, but it was largely what we would recognize today as a kind of scientific collaboration. Um, in 1942, transition to the Manhattan Project under the Army Corps of Engineers under the leadership of Leslie Groves. Um, and that was triggered by the fact that the, um, the initial results sort of indicated that it would be feasible to develop a bomb. However, it would require massive mobilization of both research and industry. And that was something that OSRD was not well situated to do it needed the horsepower, basically, of the Army Corps of Engineers. The work continued to be very closely held. So there had been this S1 committee under OSRD, the existence of the Manhattan Project. In fact, there was just an article in the New York Times about how it was uh, kept secret from the Congress that was funding it. There's a, there's a great book by Alex Wellerstein called Restricted Data, which is the history of this effort. Um, but it was not widely known across the military, the administration, or Congress that this activity was going on. Um, in fact, in restricted data, uh, Alex Wellerstein sort of speculates that amongst other reasons for wanting to keep it so secret, um, there was a concern that in the event it wasn't successful, there would be congressional oversight hearings and it would be hard to explain how $2 billion had been squandered and so it would be best uh, to you know, not be too visible about it. And in fact, this whole system of classification emerged that was um, codified at the end of the war in terms of what's called restricted data. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about that. Um, there was a lot of debate about the appropriate degree of protection. The natural tendency of the army was to compartmentalize as much as possible so that if there was a loss of information, it would not be the whole story of how things worked. You might lose a piece here and there, but you wouldn't lose everything. Um, and you know, compartmentalization is still with us today. There are many examples of pretty tightly held compartmentalized things that go on. Um, the scientists were adamantly opposed to this because they felt this problem is of such complexity and magnitude that the only way we can solve it is if we can all get in a room together and argue it out. Um, that's actually one reason that Los Alamos is cited where it was. That was seen as being a sufficiently remote location that you could collect everyone there, put a big fence around it, let them hash it out inside the fence, in free and open debate, but not be too worried about things uh, escaping uh, from outside of that. Um, 
So uh, the, the appropriate balance between you know, tight security and openness was, was, was very much part of the debate. And as I said, this separate system of classification was codified by the Atomic Energy Act of 1948 with this restri restricted data category, which is actually quite unique. This is the one area where information is classified at birth. Uh, in most of the national security apparatus, there has to be a conscious decision to say, we want to classify this particular piece of information. We are going to take an action to declare it to be classified. In the area of uh, nuclear weapons, or actually in 1946, anything nuclear was by definition classified, and you had to take an overt action to declassify it. Um, and... Uh, uh, that's, it has interesting consequences. For example, it turns out the president can't declassify restricted data because it's defined in statute how you can uh, release that information. So while the president can de declassify national security information, the president does not, I'm not making any commentary about current political events. Just an interesting tidbit. Um, okay, so after the war, um, you had had these two examples with radar and the atomic bomb where focused federal investments in the rapid development of technology that was based on pretty new discovery science had had really consequential effects that, that impacted the course of the war. And uh, Vannevar Bush, you know, in, in his report, basically in his summary report about everything that happened under OSRD, um, which is called the Endless Frontier, uh, this report to the president made recommendations for post-war R&D. And it made the case, first off, that actually science, fundamental science, is a proper concern of government. That's in quotes. It's a section, actually, of the Endless Frontier report. Um, and also, the need to preserve freedom of inquiry. And as I said, up until this point, the governments, governments around the world, this is not just in the US, had not had significant involvement in, in science. They had an interest in things that, like agriculture, where you could apply science or you know, development of longitude, but not in the development of fundamental research. And, and Bush made the case that in the developments of, the, of, of radar and the bomb, we have basically cashed in on fundamental research of years past. That reservoir is now depleted, and it's in the interest of the US government to replenish, replenish that reservoir of fundamental knowledge because we've seen how it can benefit our national security, and we believe that there is significant economic value that will be obtained when we actually release the results of this wartime R&D to industry. In, in terms of the things that industry will be able to do. So he recommended promptly lifting the security restrictions on wartime research to allow transfer to industry. Uh, and, um, and, and the Manhattan Project scientists were actually permitted to publish some of their results. There was an American Physical Society meeting in 1946 where many of the physicists and chemists and metallurgists and so on were able to present papers, not everything, 
Um, so there was a review process to sort of say, okay, this is a little bit close to the design of the weapons. Uh, but on the other hand, if you discover a new element, Promethium was discovered, it's okay to publish that. So there was a, a thoughtful process, uh, somewhat thoughtful. I mean, there was a little bit of randomness in it as well. For example, researchers on neutron scattering in Oak Ridge were not permitted to publish, but researchers using neutron scattering at Argonne, or not then Argonne, at uh, the Chicago pile, um, were allowed to publish. So, you know, arbitrary random decisions can occur. Um, other recommendations in this report were a program to educate returning GIs. Uh, and of course, many, many people who returned from the war were able to access higher education for the first time as a result of that effort. Um, and it's, it, it's, it'd be interesting to calculate the economic value associated with that, uh, because that's the reason why the US for many, many years had the highest proportion of college-educated citizens anywhere in the world. No longer true, uh, but it was a big boost in that post-war period. Uh, Bush also recommended the establishment of ro robust government funding for, for basic research. And of course, ultimately, this led to things like the National Science Foundation. You had the national labs that were established as ongoing concerns, uh, things like NASA, a whole set of instruments for federal investment in science were kind of motivated by, inspired by, and specifically recommended by this, this report. And I think it's fair to say that this really formed the blueprint uh, for the model that led to the US prevailing in the Cold War due to the economic and technological consequences of this uh, model of federal investment in basic research and the ability to transfer technology to industry, uh, both of which were elements of this uh, Endless Frontier report and are elements of the research security debate that has occurred ever since then. So, uh, there, as I said, there was this creation of restricted data and the modern system of classification of research began to come into being in the Cold War period following the Second World War. Um, and uh, the restriction of res uh, the restricted data initially was everything nuclear. Uh, and in, in 1953, Eisenhower gave a speech, which is shown here at the UN, called the Adams for Peace speech. We just celebrated the anniversary of the Adams for Peace speech, um, where he advocated for the sharing of information in nuclear science, not on design of weapons, but on things like isotopes for medical treatment um, and uh, the possible atomic energy using, using fission. Uh, so following this speech, the Atomic Energy Act was amended to allow this. Um, and the goal of this, the reason that Eisenhower was doing it was there was a desire to accelerate innovation, to speed up the development of nuclear energy. It also was designed to position the US on the global stage as a preferred partner. So it was a very um, deliberate effort to say, we have all this wonderful and important scientific information. We're prepared to share it with you. You know, if you're aligned with us, there was a, a significant element of positioning with respect to the Soviet Union associated with this. Um, the Atomic Energy Act was amended in 1954 for allowing the sharing of this. And of course, the International Atomic Energy Agency 
uh, was eventually created, and a whole set of mechanisms to manage the information flow around these technologies that are distinct from, but somewhat related to, militarily significant nuclear weapons technologies. And of course, today we have the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, we have export controls uh, that define you know, what can be shared and what can't be shared. We still use classification, obviously, for the design of weapons themselves. So you wound up with this sort of kind of three different systems. You had the open research where everything was shared. You had the classified stuff where I'm not gonna tell you how to make a nuclear weapon. And then you had export controls that were used to try and limit the proliferation of technologies that would be relevant to countries trying to stand up nuclear weapons. In parallel with that, in, uh, in, in, the, um, in the Cold War period, there was a similar set of export controls that were uh, developed to regulate traffic in arms, and ITAR came into being as a way of uh, controlling the promulgation of um, information and design information and, and engineering information um, relevant to things like radar systems and so forth. And uh, that, that is largely similar to how things work in the, in the nuclear space, although it's different agencies that are responsible. So in, in the 70s, uh, NASA developed a concept called technology readiness to try and describe how ideas move from you know, very fundamental understandings of how the world works to a widget that you can use for some intended objective. And um, these are called technology readiness levels. This, you see this everywhere now. Department of Defense has adopted it. Uh, and uh, you, you can see there's a continuum from TRL-1, which is the most basic research, how the universe works, all the way up to um, operational systems at TRL-9. And there are definitions for how things will transition from one phase to the next based on, you know, have you demonstrated the use of a subsystem, but maybe not in an integrated system? Uh, do, do you, do you uh, know that it's feasible? And, and so there's a way of kind of measuring your progress across this. And, you know, generally speaking, it also has become a proxy for how we might try and control scientific and technological information, because the feeling is if we don't want our adversaries to get you know, a nuclear weapon or a radar system, clearly that's a very high TRL level. That's a thing that's actually deployed, it works. Uh, it may be okay that they understand Maxwell's equations. And so the, the notion is that there's this kind of progression from you know, an idea, an understanding to an actual working system that we may have concerns if, uh, you know, people with bad intent get a hold of it, and somewhere along that spectrum, we're going to institute more controls. Um, it's also relevant for other sorts of controls like uh, proprietary information and, and patents and so forth. You can't patent a fundamental discovery. But if you've got something that you can make into a product, then there's protections and a legal framework for protecting that information. So, um, you know, the export controls of proprietary information would tend to be higher TRL and more fundamental research, which is both basic and applied research that will be published in the open literature would be the lower technology readiness levels one to three. 
just an observation, I would say this is kind of a useful tool. It bears no resemblance to how things actually work. Uh, this, the, you know, research is not this nice linear progression. It's this complicated, chaotic, you know, try something, it doesn't work. You've got to do some research to understand what's going on. Or conversely, you make some discovery and immediately it's useful. Uh, it, so it's, it's, it's a useful framework for thinking about things, but the world of research is much, much more complicated than represented in this thing. So it's not simply the case that you can draw a line here and say, okay, we're going to protect everything on the right-hand side of this line, and we're going to share everything on the left-hand side of this line, um, as much as we might like it to be. So by the early 80s, um, there were concerns developing in the US about our competitive position, uh, in particular, Japan, but also Europe. Uh, so in the immediate period after the Second World War, the US economy was larger than everyone else put together. And the US research enterprise was larger than everyone else put together. So actually, we did not have to spend a lot of time thinking about policies to make sure that the results of research would land in the US. That was gonna happen just by dumb luck. We were bigger than everyone else, we had larger industry, we were doing more research. We were gonna get our fair share of the economic and technological benefits of research just by virtue of our size. Um, and, and I think that's why for many years, you know, you never talked about industrial policy in the US. We had the luxury of not having to worry about industrial policy. Um, you know, that was something the Europeans did. That was something the Japanese did. Well, by the 80s, you know, we were long past the end of the war. Those economies had been rebuilt. We were feeling competitive pressure, suddenly discovered the Japanese could make better cars than we could. There was a lot of concern about the competitive position. Um, uh, and at the same time, there was this kind of patchwork of how to manage control of information around research results. Different government departments had different approaches, even within the Department of Defense, there was not much consistency. So there, was, there were efforts to try and address actually both topics, kind of in the same time frame. So on the uh, US competitiveness front, that took the form of legislation to encourage technology transfer uh, of results from federal R&D. So the Bayh-Dole Act and the Stevenson-Weidler Act were both passed in 1980, and they were intended to foster the transfer of federally funded R&D from research performers, labs and universities to the private sector. And, and laid out a framework for how that could be encouraged by actually allowing universities to have ownership rights to the intellectual property and benefit, you know, if, if there was some uh, revenue associated with that. Inventors could take a share of that. Um, and uh, the government retained rights to anything that was funded by government R&D. So the government was protected in the sense it was always available for government use, but there were incentives built into the system to try and actually make it not just tolerated, but encouraged. And of course, Stanford University and Silicon Valley are famous for all of that sort of thing. Um, so this was a go faster response to international competition. We are concerned about the economic threat posed by a resurgent Europe and Japan, and our response is, well, we're gonna 
we're gonna really try and leverage the benefits of these federal R&D investments by setting up a system of incentives, um, which actually other countries have now you know, looked at and said, hey, that's a pretty good idea and began to emulate. So uh, our, our response to competitive pressure was to go faster. There were also concerns about the um, possible loss of uh, scientific and technological information to the East Bloc. And um, that was addressed in, an, in a, a national security directive, NSDD 189 in September of 1985 that was signed by then President Reagan. And I'm sure that there was much debate that went on behind the scenes around this, but where it came down is it basically said, and this quote here, it's the policy of this administration to the maximum extent possible Projects of fundamental research remain unrestricted. And it further goes on to say that the only mechanism for restricting flow of information is classification. So it tried to define a world where it was either unclassified, it's going to be published, can be freely shared with no restrictions, or it's something we really care about, we don't want to share, and we're going to classify it, and there's a legal framework, and you can go to jail, uh, and, and um, uh, uh, basically sort of saying on the go faster front, we want as much sharing as possible when we're not trying to protect information, but there are some things that we really don't want to share. It does actually have in the last sentence a little kind of caveat, which is it says, except as restricted by statute. And it's that space where things like export controls and propriety information live. So it was not a completely black and white, open closed. There is this additional category of things that are legislatively uh, you know, controlled that allows for protection of information which is not classified. But that's been, that's been the framework uh, since then. And of course, you, know, you could argue that, that uh, in the Cold War, the endless frontier prevailed. Uh, that model was what gave the U.S. the economic and technological uh, might to prevail against the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, the assumption, I think, at the end of the Cold War was that now that the Soviet Union has collapsed and our model of federal funding and basic research and a robust private sector that can commercialize those results has been so successful that everyone else is going to adopt this playbook. Uh, and you know, it was in this sort of post-Cold War era where we saw globalization, uh, really rapid innovation, you had the concept of the flat world, and I think the feeling was that economic liberalization would lead to democratization and the world would, over time, evolve to look like the US. Um, and if everyone was playing by our rule book, we would be fine, because it was our rule book. We were the masters of it, and if we could get everyone to adopt these rules, then we would prevail because we invented it. They're all trying to, you know, they're all trying to copy Baidol, and they're all trying to set up national labs and they really wished they had universities as great as Stanford. Um, and so for the post-Cold War era, for about 30 years, 
That was the kind of world we were living in where we had a rules-based system. We had you know, regulation of fair play for trade and uh, protection of intellectual property. And that would naturally serve the US national interest because we were bound to be better than everyone else at the system that we invented. So where are we today? I, I believe that we are in a different world now. I don't know what you call it, post-post-Cold War. It sounds a little awkward. But I think it's fair to say that around 2010, maybe a little bit earlier, maybe uh, Putin's speech to the Munich Security Conference in 2007, if you'd listened to it. Um, but somewhere around 2010, things began to change. Uh, R Russia began to systematically withdraw from and undermine the rules-based order. And of course, we have seen this in very dramatic form uh, with the uh, two invasions of the Ukraine, activities in Georgia. Uh, and uh, China abandoned what had been the policy that's been characterized as peaceful rise under previous leadership. The view was China is trying to develop economically. In order to develop economically, we need uh, strong trade ties with the rest of the world. We don't want to do anything threatening or destabilizing in a military or foreign policy sense that would impede our ability to grow our economy. And, and um, when Xi Jinping came to power shortly after 2010, uh, things began to shift. You saw a different sort of set of policies. There was this thing called Made in China 2025, which um, basically said, okay, we built, China built its economy manufacturing products that were developed and designed elsewhere. And they recognized that all those Apple computers that were being assembled in uh, Shenzhen the value, the largest value associated with them was being realized in Cupertino. And so China's, and as they should, they sort of said, okay, well, we'd like to capture more of the economic value associated with this activity. And if we're gonna do that, we have to be not just making stuff developed elsewhere, we have to be developing things in China. And so, Made in China 2025, although it, well, it's probably, it's a translation, so I suspect probably in the original Mandarin, it's got a little more subtlety. It's actually not about manufactured in China, although that's certainly part of it. It's about invented, developed, designed, and manufactured in China. So it had a very significant element of, we wanna gain control over our destiny in terms of the intellectual content of the things that we're doing. You also had a very dramatic and enhancement of military capabilities that has been going on, which has a very strong technology focus to it. Uh, you have things like the Belt and Road Initiative, and you had the Thousand Talents Program. The Thousand Talents Program, which was sort of a precipitating thing for a lot of the activity we've seen around research, activity, uh, research security, um, was a reaction to a US program that we didn't even know we had. We had a million talents program or a millions of talents program where people from around the world, including from China, would come to the US to get educated and then they would stay here and we would get the benefit of their intellectual capital. And um, although 
and Tom Finger knows a lot of this history, initially the introduction of uh, Chinese citizens, Chinese students into the US was viewed as a means of helping China develop. It turned out to be a huge benefit to the US because of all the people who came to this country. Chinese looked at this and said, wait a minute, you know, we've got this Made in China 2025 program. We want to be developing ideas in this country. We can't be having all these people go overseas and then not return. And in fact, this was described in terms of sea turtles. Uh, so there was an analogy here because sea turtles always go back to the same beach to lay their eggs. So the idea was, okay, how can we get these sea turtles to come back to the beach where their eggs were hatched, i.e. China? And the Thousand Talents program was designed to do that. It was designed to make it more attractive for people you know, in research areas that were of interest to China for whatever reasons, for economic development reasons, for healthcare reasons, for military reasons, uh, to return to China to make their careers. Um, so we're now in this new world. I just tried to make the case that it's different from the post-Cold War era. And I think it's a reasonable question to ask is, you know, maybe the endless frontier was absolutely right for 1945, 1946. And, you know, the fact that it was good for another uh, 70 or so years after that was pretty darn good. Maybe we need a new model. Is it fit for purpose in the 21st century? You know, and it was designed, as I said, the U.S. economy was larger than everyone else put together, as was our R&D enterprise. We didn't have to be too clever to get the fair share uh, for the U.S. taxpayer who paid for the research. It was going to happen. Um, and in the second half of the Cold War, it was other allies who were becoming significant. It was the fact that Japan and Europe you know, had, had reconstituted their economies and their, their scientific enterprises, and they were playing by our rules. We could collaborate with them knowing that you know, there might be bad actors here or there, but the systems were aligned with us. And they were aligned with us through alliances like NATO and our security agreements in the Pacific, where you know, a float-all-boat strategy was definitely a good strategy. We had a common interest, both economically and from a national security point of view. And in the immediate post-Cold War period, the view was that, as I said, everyone's going to be adopting our rules, and we invented those rules, so we'll be just fine. Um, so now, now we find ourselves in a situation where we've got active military conflict in Europe with Russia. Uh, China is engaged in a very aggressive technological and economic competition, which has very tight military integration. You know, forget about what's going on in the Middle East or Iran. Just those two situations are very different, I think, in terms of how we ought to be thinking about this than they were during the period of time um, that the endless frontier policy framework served us so well. So I think it's a reasonable question to ask um, whether or not, you know, it's, it's still valid. So, um, you know, we are trying to adjust to this changed environment. Um, there, there was this China initiative in the Department of Justice that, that actually led to some successful prosecutions as well as some very visible failures. I haven't done the math exactly, but I think it's fair to say for every successful prosecution, there was a catastrophe, and you know, in some cases, a pretty embarrassing sort of catastrophe um, that had 
you know, tremendous consequences in terms of people's perception of their personal safety and value in the US based on their ethnic origin. Um, however, it's true that China's efforts were really uh, designed to take advantage of our open ecosystem and in fact, to be legal which is one of the reasons that many of these prosecutions were not successful. There are many things that may be unethical, but are not illegal. And there are many things that are completely normal that, you know, if you put too much of a sinister overlay on it, you can convince yourself there's a problem where there isn't one. But the things like the Thousand Talents program were actually designed with that in mind. Uh, so, you, you know, the, the legal system is a pretty blunt instrument to, resign, to respond to something, particularly in the case where it's specifically designed to not be illegal. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why there were some pretty visible failures, as well as some, you know, successful prosecutions that remind you if someone gives you an envelope filled with $100 bills, you ought to think carefully about you know, whether or not you're gonna tell the IRS about it. Um, so in, in, at the end of the Trump administration, uh, there was a National Security Presidential Memorandum 33 that was issued. Uh, Kelvin Drogermeyer was the president's science advisor who sort of shepherded this through the system. And that is now being implemented under the Biden administration. I think that is noteworthy because you know, there are many areas of policy where you did not have continuity from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. This is an area of policy where that ball did not get dropped in the transition. Now the implementation may have turned out subtly different in some ways, but actually by and large, pretty consistent views across two very different administrations that some sort of response is appropriate. Um, and, this, this memorandum attempts to refine policies around government-funded R&D. It's now been legislatively augmented in the Chips and Science Act. There are provisions that specifically speak to this. So this system is trying to adjust to this changed environment. And um, I, think, I think we need to adjust, but we need to be very thoughtful about how we adjust. That is the challenge. This is not straightforward. It never was straightforward. There never was this linear progression from TRL1 through to TRL8 where we could draw a bright red line. It was never so simple as to say it's either classified or unclassified. We always had these export controls in other areas. Um, but, uh, and this is a quote from some testimony that was given by Anna Puglisi, who will be joining us tomorrow. I don't see her. Oh, there she is in the back, uh, which I'd like to, with acknowledgement, it's very important to always cite your references. Um, extreme propositions such as closing our eyes, laissez-faire, or closing our doors only benefit China. Our response to this is really important because it, it is entirely possible if we're not careful that we actually uh, greatly aid the aims of the Chinese government. The Thousand Talents program was designed to encourage people to return to China. If we kick them out of the country, then you don't need a thousand talents program. You know, a, a, a layoff is the most strong incentive you could imagine uh, for someone to go back 
in a way that they maybe would not have chosen to were they given other opportunities. So calibrating our response is extremely important. I think it's useful to ask the question, does international engagement benefit US and economic, uh, economic and national security? Um, I can tell you as a scientist, you sort of, uh, you eat this in your breakfast cereal, you take it as given. Um, in fact, I've been trained in this since birth. My father worked at a Canadian government research lab in an international environment. And I think it's really important to go back and ask the question, okay, in 2024, is this proposition still valid? Because as I said, a lot of things have changed. So, you know, do we do better if we share, collaborate, educate, and host researchers from other countries? Or should we try and limit our interaction to reduce the risk of loss of information? And the fact that there's some possibility that US taxpayer funded R&D could pop up in some way that we don't like somewhere else in the form of a factory making stuff that we then have to buy from overseas or some weapon that's pointed at us. Uh, from my point of view, this is like asking, well, do we need a strong offense or a defense to win? You actually need both. So yes, we ought to be sharing, collaborating, educating, because this is how we go fast. And yes, we actually need to take some measures to protect the things that are important to us. Uh, but it's often presented as one or the other. We need to shut everything down, build the walls really high because we can't tolerate the risk of, of losing something versus, oh, let's just keep going and pretend that there's you know, no untoward risks associated with what we're doing. This is Anna's point about you know, it's neither laissez-faire nor build the walls higher. Um, and, and I think in thinking about this, and I've got a couple of examples that I want to go through, I'm probably in slightly more than six minutes. Um, it's not a question of whether or not, as researchers, we enjoy interacting with colleagues from around the world and doing our research. Of course we do. You know, who doesn't want to go to a summer school in Sardinia? Put up your hand, right? It's, it's wonderful. It's one of the reasons research careers are attractive, because you get to interact with people from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, go to beautiful places, have tremendous arguments. Um, that's not the point. You know, the US government does not fund your vacation, at least directly. You know, you don't get US government funds to go sit on the beach in Sardinia. Um, is there concrete evidence to support the argument that the benefits of international engagement outweigh the risks? That's the, that's the real question. And there are benefits and there are risks. Benefits, pooling of resources, these are big problems. We need all hands on deck. Um, more mines, we can go faster. There are risks. We could lose competitive advantage. Um, it may, things may be commercialized in other countries. Uh, there may be military technologies that are developed as a byproduct of some of these research activities. So there's, you know, there's, there's, there's benefits, there's risks. So I'm, I'm gonna very quickly go through a couple of examples. First two are very specific to Los Alamos. So um, there's this thing called the Mars Rover. There's a picture of it. I think everybody knows about it. It's the coolest thing. It's driving around on the surface of Mars. There's actually two of them, um, uh, Perseverance and Curiosity. Uh, one's been up there for over 10 years. So for over, in fact, for more like 20 years, researchers at Los Alamos, supported by NASA, have been working with colleagues at uh, 
at a French institute, the Institut de Recherche en Astrophysique et Planetologie, uh, to develop instrumentation for the Mars rover. And the thing that they have done is here. It's called the SuperCam. Actually, the first version on the earlier Mars rover was called ChemCam. And this led to the development of something called laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy. It's the laser that zaps the rocks. And when you zap the rocks, you can figure out what their chemical constituents are. And that's relevant if you're trying to understand, was there water on Mars? Are there conditions for creation of life and so forth? And, and this joint French-US team, they, they, they actually get to drive the rover. They, you know, they do the results. They publish it in the open, open literature. There's been many, many joint publications. Researchers have gone back and forth between both countries. We have US PhD students who work at Los Alamos, go to France for postdocs, come back to Los Alamos and join our permanent staff, um, and vice versa. So it's, it's certainly a great example of international collaboration and pretty fundamental research, although strong technology development here, because you know, you're building a widget to go on a thing that's gonna be on Mars operating for 10 years. That's like a non-trivial engineering feat, as well as really cool uh, basic science. So what are benefits to national security? So it turns out, why is Los Alamos doing this? Wait a minute, I thought you guys did bombs. Uh, why are you driving rovers around on Mars? Well, first off, because it's very cool. Um, but actually, it's an important element of our strategy for space and planetary science. And this is a means by which we recruit scientists and engineers who go on to careers where they can, can contribute to important national security programs, some of which I can't even tell you about. But some of them I can. So we are responsible with our colleagues at Sandia for something called the Global Nuclear Burst Detection System, uh, sort of illustrated schematically here. Uh, so these are packages that go onto satellites like the GPS Block 3 satellites that are intended to determine if there's a nuclear detonation anywhere on the planet Earth. This is important for treaty verification and also nuclear command and control. So it is right at the heart of national security. And, you know, the pipeline for us is partially enabled by things like the Mars rover. Uh, you know, that's unclassified. We can bring in fresh graduate students to work on it, or even undergraduates and, you know, progress them through the system. And they develop a skill set that can be highly relevant to pretty important national security work uh, as a consequence of that. And, um, uh, that's, that's a component. The planetary science side, so it turns out geology and geophysics is another thing that's really important to Los Alamos National Lab. Why is that? Well, because we're kind of interested if other countries are trying to develop nuclear weapons. And um, we want to understand whether or not they're compliant with the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which is not ratified, but it's still the global norm that most countries comply with. So we have to have people who are really good at geology and geophysics and understanding seismic signals. And if you want an example of that, there's another New York Times story that came out just before Christmas. Uh, the headline is China quietly rebuilds secretive base for nuclear tests, which uses satellite imagery to say, okay, there's a bunch of stuff going on at Lopner. Not really sure what it is. It'd be kind of nice to know. Um, and you know, are they doing things that maybe are skirting the boundaries of the comprehensive test ban treaty restrictions on nuclear tests as they're building 300 missile silos uh, in the desert in China? Uh, 
Again, planetary science, very important to our national security mission, enabled by this international engagement around the Mars rover. The final example is this laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy. Um, this is uh, yet another example of something, a new technology that was developed for a space application that we're now deploying on Earth in our plutonium facility to enable the production of pits, which are the uh, sort of key component of the first stage of a modern thermonuclear weapon. It doesn't get much more hardcore national security than that. And we are able to take advantage of the fact that we developed this technology. You know, PF4 is a difficult environment, but I can tell you it's not as hard as Mars. It's close, but it's not as hard as Mars. So, so again, uh, the, the, these open science international collaborative activities do tie back in a very direct way to things that are right at the heart of US national security. Okay, another example, COVID-19. In 2020, and some of you may have seen uh, this news story that appeared in the Los Angeles Times, uh, Betty Korber, who's one of the uh, Lanel Fellows, which is a designation that we give to our most celebrated scientists and engineers, and her colleagues published a paper that showed that COVID-19 spread, this was in the spring of 2020, um, was accelerated by a new European strain that emerged in Italy. You may remember COVID-19 first appeared in China. It next really broke out in, in Italy in the area around Florence and just took off like wildfire after that. And in fact, what Betty and her colleagues were able to do was show that this was because of mutation that occurred that quickly became the dominant strain and displaced the original Wuhan strain of the virus. At the time, this was quite controversial because this was a computationally derived result. It was not based on laboratory testing that showed that this strain you know, reproduces more quickly. And in this community, the, you know, the, the, uh, the card of the realm is those laboratory tests. And so it was controversial um, because it was derived from genetic sequences that were available in an international database that's, uh, that's cited in Germany called the Global Initiative for Sharing All Influenza Data, where researchers would upload genomes associated with initially influenza, but once COVID happened, they began doing that. And so what you could do is analytically determine in that database over time and space, what's the prevalence of one strain over another? And they were able to demonstrate that this particular strain that emerged in Italy quickly became the dominant strain, and it's the strain from which all currently active strains are. Our drive. Now, you know, now we take this for granted. We talk about Omicron and, you know, there's all these different B6112, actually that's a nuclear weapon, but, you know, there's a uh, designation uh, that we use for this and it's incredibly important for tuning the vaccines. So the vaccines that we have now for this season have been tuned for the strains of the virus that we're beginning to develop. Um, and it was only possible because of this international data sharing through this uh, GISAID. Um, there are other examples of this uh, in terms of the protein data bank, for example, where all protein structures have to be deposited in order to publish them in any reputable journal. Freely available, incredibly important for drug discovery. Um, and these sorts of international databases are particularly going to be important in a world where we're trying to use artificial intelligence to accelerate scientific discovery. 
Because in the world of AI, it's all about the data. And you need to have the largest data sets that's most representative globally in order to be able to extract meaningful information. Um, so th this is the last example, and then I'll finish. Um, th those first two examples were anecdotes. Betty Korber published a paper using an internationally uh, available database. Our researchers you know, on the Mars rover worked with colleagues in France. So you may say, well, that's great. Those are very cool anecdotes, but it doesn't really make the case for why international collaboration is important. So for the third example, what I wanted to do, and this, I'm sorry, this hasn't totally reproduced terribly well on the slide, was uh, look not at a specific research activity, but a whole field. And the field in this case is a topical one. It's artificial intelligence. So in 2017 at the People's Congress, Xi Jinping highlighted the importance of Chinese leadership in artificial intelligence. He made a bold declarative statement, China has to lead in the world of AI because AI is the future. We are gonna put all of the resources of, of the Chinese government behind this. And in fact, China has established pretty significant leadership in some notable areas. Facial recognition would be one example where there, you know, there's really world-leading Chinese technology because facial recognition is particularly important if you want to be able to monitor all of your population all the time online you know, through cameras that record their motion. Um, so uh, in 2020, the Paulson Institute in Chicago has this uh, thing called Macro Polo. It's macro, macroeconomics, but Marco Polo looking at China. Um, that did an analysis of, of AI research. And what they did is in, in this field, this is a field where conference publications are the measure of high impact research. This is not true in all fields of science. In my field, conference publications are worthless. But in this particular field, giving an invited talk at the right conference is an indication that you're doing forefront research. So they looked at co-authorship of prestigious conference publications. And what they established in 2020, and there's a new update to this study that's coming out any day now. So if you go to the website, you'll find that it's the 2020 study is no longer available, but the new one isn't up yet. But so I'm just citing the 2021. First off, US leads the world in AI research. So we're actually doing pretty well, despite this statement that China has to go all on in on this. And if, if you doubt me on that, just look at the hype over the last year, right? What is, the, what is all the excitement around AI? Well, it's US-based multinational tech companies, Microsoft and ChatGPT and Google and Bird. Um, so, you know, we're actually, you know, in a strong leadership position in terms of R&D, what they're measuring is R&D, actually, not the economic activity. The other thing, which is shown in this slide, but you can't see because of the way it's transpired, is the US has benefited very significantly from a massive infusion of foreign talent, especially from China. And so what is tracked here, but not terribly visible, is the progression of individuals from undergraduate degrees to graduate degrees to working professionally. And if you could see it, uh, what you would see, and it's sort of a little bit visible, is a ton of people from China did their undergraduate degrees to China, came to the U.S. to do graduate degrees, and stayed in the U.S. So U.S. is leading, and a principal contributor to its leadership is an infusion of talent, not just from China, but from everywhere in the world. Um, and I hope I don't have to convince you that AI is important 
technologically, economically, and militarily to the future of the U.S. Um, you know, the the uh, we see the the economic benefit in terms of these U.S. tech sector companies that are working hard to capitalize on the possibilities with things like OpenAI, Microsoft, Google DeepMind, and so forth. There are also very significant benefits in science and security. Uh, and in fact, there's a national security presidential memorandum that's being drafted right now to really talk about applications of AI. We've, the initial executive order was mainly focused on risks, uh, but there's also tremendous utility that is, is highly relevant uh, to, our, to our national security. Um, so I'm getting to the end. Um, when I was, uh, Norbert didn't do my whole CV, but, but uh, at the end of the Cold War, I was working in Europe. I was working at a Danish lab. We had a lot of collaboration with researchers from West Germany. And after the end of the Cold War, when the Berlin Wall came down, the West German researchers were sort of sent into East Germany to go and assess the research infrastructure in East Germany because they were going to integrate. And the interesting thing for me when I was talking with colleagues who'd sort of been to these research institutions in the former East Germany that in many cases had long and proud histories, uh, you know, predating the, the uh, division of Germany, um, was not that they were behind the West. I think that was understood. The interesting and surprising thing was that they did not realize how far behind they were. And I think in the end, that is, that is one of the greatest risks of overdoing it on the protection and isolation side. Not only will we not go faster, but we will not know how far behind we have fallen because we won't have that engagement. Um, and that creates the conditions for technological surprise. You know, one of the precipitating events at the end of the Cold War was the first Iraq War, where all of a sudden it was revealed that all of these things like smart bombs and so forth actually worked. And that came as a shock uh, to the Soviet system. Um, and in the former East Germany, when they, you know, when, when, when the reintegration happened, it largely meant recreation. And in fact, institutions like the Max Planck Institute basically had to create new greenfield research institutes because there just wasn't much to start with in, in the uh, former uh, East German system. So I think that's a kind of cautionary tale. So, um, you know, I actually think NSDD 189 is still valid, even though the conditions have changed. It tries to create a framework for both rapid innovation and protection you know, it says if it's fundamental research, i.e. research that is going to be freely shared and made available through the open literature, it should, should not have restrictions placed on it. And then it also has this except as provided in applicable U.S. statutes, which, as I said, that's the mechanism by which we deal with things like expert control. So it has all of the tools we need for both openness and protection. Um, classify what we have to. Control through legal means like export controls and intellectual property, the things that we, we need to, but don't restrict that which is destined to be in the open literature. So what needs to change? How should we respond? I do think we need to adapt to the risks that, that, that these efforts to subvert our open research environment pose. We need to think through who we work with and on what topics. You know, no researcher wants their ideas stolen. But it's not just a question of trusting an individual. And I think this is a key point. Um, 
if, if you go to any researcher and say, would you collaborate with someone who was going to take the results of your collaboration, publish them in a journal in another country and not list you as a co-author, they would say, of course not. There is no way I'm gonna tolerate that. Um, and you know, people will make their judgments on who they work with based on whether or not they trust them. The challenge is that it's not just a question of do you trust the individual? It's, it's also a recognition that people are working in institutions and systems that impose on them expectations. And those expectations may be inconsistent with our values in terms of what's an appropriate sort of collaboration. Uh, there may be coercion that's applied. Uh, there may be employment expectations to do certain things. So even totally trustworthy, honorable individuals may find themselves in situations where they feel compelled to do things that we are not comfortable with. And that's where it gets challenging because it's not, I don't think it's reasonable to impose on individual researchers a requirement to figure this out by themselves. They can certainly figure out, do I trust Norbert? But they can't necessarily figure out who's he working for and what, what expectations are imposed on him by the institution or the system in which he's working. It's not reasonable to ask our researchers to do that. Um, if the only thing that was at stake was someone publishing a paper and excluding you from the author list, then I would say it's fine to leave it to the individuals. Let people make their best judgment whether or not they trust people. But there is more at stake here because we have seen instances where researchers have taken um, research results that led to intellectual property, patented them in other countries without properly acknowledging either the co-inventors or the institutions in which they were working who under Baidol have intellectual property rights to that, to that information. Um, you know, we have seen examples where people have taken results that were ultimately destined for the open literature and shared them in ways that are inappropriate pre-publication. And you know, these are things that we you know, don't accept. And actually it doesn't matter whether it's in China or not. You know, you wouldn't want to work with someone at Berkeley who was going to do that to you. Uh, so in, in that sense, it's just more about norms. But, but I think it's not reasonable to, to ask individuals. You know, these agreements, this is an example of a thousand talents agreement. Um, you know, the first part of it lays out all this stuff. You're going to get uh, 1.5 million RMB per year for your research. You're going to get an apartment in Shanghai. Uh, you're going to get all these graduate students. But it's not a click-through agreement because you get down, you know, further down in the argument, and it's got these other things that are, you know, you're, you're going to be expected to recruit people. You're going to be expected to patent information. You're going to be expected to start companies. You know, there, there, there are a lot of uh, quid pro quo kind of things in these agreements. Uh, that, that one ought to be careful of. So NSPM 33 is designed to define a risk management framework. It's mainly focused on disclosure. I think the important question is, okay, disclosure is good, we need to know that. What are you gonna do with that information? Unfortunately, I think there's a tendency to say, okay, we filled out the disclosure forms, we're done, we're good, we don't have to do anything else. Well, the point of the disclosure is so that you could make an informed decision. And that's a hard thing to do. Um, 
you know, there are some institutions that are defining what I would call fairly sophisticated risk management approaches. MIT has an example, which you can find on their website, where they go through in a fairly detailed way. You know, MIT or Stanford, you know, they have a lot of resources. They have experts in foreign policy. They have experts in national security. They have experts in science. They have experts in technology. Um, smaller institutions, more of a challenge. They may not have the resources to tackle this. Um, I would argue there are large domains of research that are inherently pretty low risk, and we ought to just, you know, take that off the table from the get-go. If the only risk is getting your name left off a paper, then you can manage that as an individual. And, and, and um, we need to, this is gonna cost money. We need to focus our resources on the areas where the risk is highest. And, and if people are gonna engage in unethical behavior in their cosmology research, then you know, the scientific community has ways of uh, dealing with that. And we can, we can leave it there. So I think that's the first thing is, is we need to just take off the table a lot of things that are pretty inherently low risk. Um, the other thing is, and this is kind of my final point, we do have mechanisms for carrying out research in a more managed environment. So we have things called university affiliated research centers or UARCs, which are federally funded institutions. Often the DOD uses this mechanism quite a lot where they can you know, provide more uh, controls on the environment in which the research is being conducted. There are federally funded research and development centers. Los Alamos would be an example of one of those. And again, we can handle the most sensitive classified research all the way to the most open stuff and everything in between. And we try and you know, manage that in a smart way because we, you know, we need the protection for the things that must be protected, but we want to make sure that we're good enough that we got stuff worth protecting as well, which is why we engage internationally. Um, and it may well be that uh, for risk for, for fundamental research that's sort of seen in, in an area that has the potential to actually pretty quickly move into the more controlled space, whether it's export controls or ultimately classified, we ought to make use of those institutional environments that we already have, like the UARCs, like the FFRDCs, so that if you do need to move into the export control or classified space, you can, you can do it. Um, and you know there, there's there's a need to find balance. We need to protect what we need to protect, but we don't want to undermine our ability to develop something worth protecting. We need things that are worth stealing, basically, in order uh, to have something worth protecting. Um, and I think there's there's also other elements to not just losing less but winning more, and that gets more into quality of the infrastructure, openness and quality of life, opportunities to collaborate globally. But if we chase everyone away, then nobody's gonna need talent recruitment programs. And as I said, a layoff is a pretty powerful exam, uh, incentive. So um, you know, an uncalibrated response is actually gonna achieve the objectives of our adversaries. So we need to be thoughtful, it's hard work, it's gonna cost money. Um, and I think I'll stop there because I'm over time. Happy to answer any questions. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, I'll uh, open up for a few questions just quickly because we're a little late, but uh, we'll do one or two, three. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Ethan. I am Alan from Stanford. I'm just around. Um, very interesting talk, but my challenge to you is there are some voices in Silicon Valley that would say that what you are describing is probably obsolete, like the Elon Musk Ventures 
show how you can do it, how you can do the cutting edge research to push uh, EVs, to push the space to the next frontier, attract people from all around the world in the open, and it's essentially doing a cutting edge work that China can copy you. And you attract the foreign talent, you pay them well, and you do it in the open through private enterprise. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's true that there is a, certainly a school of thought that, that just focuses on speed. And, and, you know, I remember having a conversation with Jensen Wang, who's the CEO of NVIDIA, and asking him, well, you know, NVIDIA has research institutes in China. And I said, how do you, how do you gauge the risk associated with that? And he said, well, first off, we assume that anything we do there, we lose. It's just, it's given, it's gone, but it's okay because we are gonna go faster. And so we gain in terms of, you know, access to smart people and so forth. We know we're gonna lose it all, but as long as we can go faster, it'll be fine because by the time uh, someone else has implemented that, we'll be on to the next thing. And I think for, for, for you know, for the technology sector, um, that there are examples, and you cited some other ones where, where that certainly works. Um, you know, not everything is like the tech sector. And I think that's part of the challenge is, is that, uh, you know, there are some things that have long timelines, large capital investments, um, and uh, nimbleness. By definition, anything in the federal government is not characterized by nimbleness, and so, we have to recognize that you know, speed may not be one of our attributes. And so we need other ways to protect stuff as well. Okay, one more question. I think then we quit for here. Any more questions? Yep, Bill? Bill? Thanks for your talk. I resonate very much with everything you said. But what sort of reception do you get on Capitol Hill when you sort of provide your perspective? to, for example, the, uh, the Senate committee I and mean, the House committee that's very much looking at ways to restrict probably more than we would like. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. It's one of the reasons why I, I kind of framed a part of this talk of, uh, you know, we actually need to answer the question, is there value to the U.S. government of an economic or national security uh, benefit associated with international collaboration? Because even though I think in the research community, we take that as given. It is not taken as a given on the Hill. Uh, and you know, in a recent meeting with a bunch of staff from the, um, the, the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, they were commenting on the fact that at the Department of Energy Labs, because of the user facilities like uh, the LCLS at Slack, we have thousands of foreign researchers, and in particular, I can't remember the exact number, but I believe that, that in the most recent compilation, there were like 7,000 Chinese nationals who were uh, you know, accessing US national labs. And their initial response is, why is that number not zero? That's the starting point for the conversation, is why is that number not zero? You need to explain to me why we would let anyone in from China, given the current kind of geopolitical circumstance. Um, and, and uh, you know, there is a belief that uh, legislative action is required. 
We saw recently with the House Energy and Water Appropriations Bill, a floor amendment called the Lamborn Amendment that would prohibit sensitive country foreign nationals from accessing uh, the DOE labs that work for the National Nuclear Security Administration. And the reason for that was there were concerns because it had been expressed that in the interest of transparency, we might wanna have observers at some of our subcritical nuclear tests from China or Russia. And uh, you know that didn't sit well. The response was to ban all sensitive country foreign nationals, which actually means people from Israel, uh, people from India, people from Ukraine. So, you know, you might not like the Russians, uh, you might not like the Iranians, uh, you might not like the Chinese, but what about people from Taiwan, you know, where we want to foster collaboration? So there is a strong built-in tendency to pretty prescriptive black and white responses to an area where I think a fair amount of analysis and nuance is required. That's why I said it, you know, you really need to look at who's coming, where are they coming from, what are they going to be working on, and what are they going to have access to? And that cannot be reduced to legislation. And that's the challenge that we faced, is there's, there's a strong tendency to want to, as I said, why is the number not zero? What don't you understand? And we could get a legislated zero really easily. And as I said, the, the, uh, the best... Uh, foreign talent recruitment China, uh, program that we could offer the government of China is to send everyone back. They don't even need to do anything and there's a risk that that's gonna be the response. Okay, thank you very much for joining. I wanna thank Tom again for coming here and giving this talk and we'll see a few of us later. Thank you very much. 